0: I echo the words of Paul that we just heard read from page. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly. We have much to rejoice in. I uh, was reflecting back even this morning driving up. I was telling our team, I was like, I feel like we're just setting up for like an event. And then like we have to tear this all down and go back and get back our folding chairs. It hasn't really sunk in yet that the Lord uh, has brought us here to this place. And I'm so grateful in this passage that we're in is such an awesome uh, place for us to land for our hearts and mind. Because it's all on contentment. And what I want us to be thinking about and what I want us to be processing as we're opening the word is, yes, we can rejoice in this place because of the goodness of God. Uh, We can meet under a tree. We can meet in a dance studio. We can meet in this great place. Uh, And Paul's helping us remind us that our joy and our rejoicing is found in the faithfulness of the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. He's been so good to us. We've just been singing about his faithfulness and his goodness and that he makes a way, and he does. Um, And so I'm excited that we are getting to land in this passage. If you're new with us and you've just like walked in, maybe you've seen a sign. You're like, oh, there's a new church coming into town. And you're kind of like, what, they're in the middle of Philippians 4? I thought this was kind of a new thing. What's going on here? Well, I want to tell you a little bit about us. We're, We're eight years old. We started eight years ago in a living room. Uh, And really eight years ago when we started, I, uh, I really had no idea what the Lord was going to do. I felt the Lord calling me to take a step of faith with a group, a small group of people to establish a new work of ministry in this community that I love and that I came to faith in many, many years before in high school. Um, and so we just took, uh, we took a step of faithfulness And our story and our journey has been the Lord's faithfulness, the Lord's provision, the Lord's kindness all along the way from a living room to a kids ministry meeting in upstairs bedrooms to... To, uh, a dance studio that we met in, to another dance studio that we met in, to busting down walls, and we've just slowly but surely outgrown uh, every space that we've been in, and the Lord in his providence and his kindness has led us to this place. So if you're new with us, I want to say welcome. We are thrilled that you are here. We're thrilled that your story is intersecting ours in this new season in the life of our church, um, but we have eight rich years of the Lord's faithfulness behind us, Uh, and we have eight rich years of God growing and molding and shaping and forming us. Uh, Like Paul just mentioned in this passage that we're going to be in this morning, uh, we've had some high highs, and we've had some low lows, but that's all of our stories, Uh, and what I think we need to remember here today is God's faithfulness through it all. And so uh, we're grateful to open the word. We're in a series, we've been in a series as we prepare to move into this place called Gospel Culture, where we're looking at what does it mean to be a people that anchor our hearts and our lives on the good news of the gospel of the risen Lord Jesus Christ. We're looking at what it means to be a people that are formed by King Jesus. So when Paul is writing this letter, uh, they all had to bend the knee to a different king and Caesar, so he finds himself in prison because he's... He's proclaiming the good news of a new king that has come, King Jesus, and his kingdom will reign forever. And he's above and greater than Caesar. And so he finds himself in opposition uh, to the the Roman government and finds himself in jail. And he's writing a letter back to this church that he helped plant years before. And he finds himself in a hard place. Um, Have you ever been in a rough spot in your life? Many of us have. Really all of us, I'm sure, have. You're down and out on your luck. Your bank account maybe is dwindling. You're wondering what's going to happen next. Maybe your health is failing you. Um, And we've all had this moment, or I hope you've had this moment, that when you're down and out, when things aren't looking your way, when your health is failing, when the bank account is running dry, that someone comes to your aid that a friend or a family member comes to your aid, that groceries show up on the doorstep, that someone comes to the hospital at the bedside and prays for you and prays with you and gives you hope and gives you encouragement to go another day. And how do we repay people for that type of generosity? What's the very first thing that we do when we experience the generosity of the people around us? What do we do? What's just normal? Say, okay, no one says thank you. What's, we can, I, I can still, I see all of you. It's, we're not like a, in a stadium here. It's like, we say thank you. That's just the natural response is we, we're so grateful in those moments when someone shows up for us and so our response is just in the, mi- in the midst of generosity poured out to you is just to say thank you. So I want to pause right here because this is what we see Paul doing right here as he's closing this letter to the Philippians, as he's saying thank you to them, is I want to just say, uh, just thank y'all. Thank you. Uh, it's just been a, it's been a joyful journey that the Lord has taken this church on. Uh, thank you for your sacrifice, thank you for uh, serving this church family, thank you for loving one another, thank you for caring for one another in a deep and meaningful way, thank you over the last six months on this roller coaster of how we got here, and if you've been along the journey, it's just been, uh, it's like, hold on, so thank you for responding to the Lord uh, we're sitting here and we're in this place because of the great generosity of this church family. So thank you. Uh, deeply, meaningfully, I'm, uh, thank you very much. It is a joy and an honor to be counted as a pastor to this wonderful church family. So thank you all very, very much. Just to echo the words of Paul, and this is what's happening here at the end of this letter. Um, Paul, again, is in a Roman prison, And uh, the way that the Roman prison system works, uh, if you you land in the Roman prison, you don't get three square meals a day paid for by the government. This is so weird. I have so much room. I'm like walking back and forth. I don't, sorry, this is going to take some getting used to. I can like do laps up here. I'm used to like a spot this big, or I run into a piano or a guitar, so forgive me if I'm pacing. I don't know what to do with all this room. Um, So the Roman prison system, you have to uh, be supported by family and friends in order to survive in the prison system. They don't provide you meals. They don't provide for you money, clothes, water, food. You have to be brought that to sustain you during your time in incarceration in the Roman prison system. So Paul is literally dying He's a 1,000 miles away from Jerusalem. He's 800 miles away from the Philippian church he helped plant many years ago. So he doesn't have a lot of folks around him that are bringing him provision. So Paul is quite literally dying of starvation because he's not being provided for. He's not... um, He's not being cared for, and he's there because of his proclamation of the good news that King Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. And Paul now is a traitor to the empire by preaching this good news, and he is lacking just provision. And out of the blue, out of the blue, the doors blow open. And if you remember, if you were with us months ago, this guy named Epaphroditus comes running through the door, so to speak, He's all the way from Philippi, this church that Paul helped plant. He comes some 800 miles, they believe. This incredible journey to get to the apostle Paul when he gets word that Paul is in prison and is in great need. And Epaphroditus brings gifts, and he brings money, and he brings food, and he brings clothing, and Paul is saved. He's saved. And one of the reasons Paul is writing this church is he's writing to say thank you. Thank you. And so the end of Philippians reads a little bit like an ancient thank you letter. And he's saying, thank you so much, church. Epaphroditus just saved me, came at my time of greatest need. And so what I want to do with the rest of our time is I just want to walk through our passages 10 through 13, line by line this morning and see how Paul is rejoicing in the Lord. Verse 10, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly. The word rejoice can be translated celebrate. Celebrates. So the sentence could be translated this way I'm having a great celebration in the Lord. I'm having a great celebration in the Lord here. Remember, where is Paul? God, okay, yeah, three people remember. I've said it like four times. He's in prison guy's in a Roman prison. He's saying, I'm having a great celebration in the Lord. And remember what he was harping on last week, this whole state of mind. He says, remember from last week, he says, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, if there's any excellence, if anything, worthy of praise, think about these things. Meditate on these things. These are the things, Paul says, that should be filling your mind, should be occupying your mind. And now he's calling the church, essentially, if you remember, to celebrate the goodness of God in all of creation, all around them, in the present, no matter what you're going through. And Paul is saying, open your eyes to the great generosity of God. Open your eyes to the the generous outpouring of God's faithfulness in your life. And Paul is not a hypocrite. He is not poolside with snacks and an umbrella in his drink, saying this. He's in prison, so he's living out a very difficult circumstance. And he's saying, I, even now, even right here in this place, am having a great celebration in the Lord. A celebration in the Lord. And he goes on. That now at length you have revived your concern for me. Or uh could be translated renewed. It's, uh, the, the, the Greek word is a botanical word. And it's a botanical word for like the budding of a new flower in spring. Uh, new life. Uh, new life being, uh, being bloomed. And so he's saying when Epaphroditus walked through the door, when he came bursting through the door with all of these provisions, it was the end of a long, cold, dark winter. And the start of a brand new spring came. I've been revived and he goes on, now at length, you've res- revived your concern for me. Concern, he's m- meaning he's pointing to the gifts, the money, the food, the water, all that was provided for him. Next line, you were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. In other words, I know you cared for me. I know that you wanted to help me. I know that your heart was bent for me and toward me, and you were concerned. But I knew you were 800 miles away, and it was hard for you to get to me. Like, you couldn't just show up, like, the next day because you were just physically far away. And he's saying, but thank you that you made it, that I'm alive, that the gospel is still advancing even here in this Roman cell. Paul's saying, thank you. But look at the next line. This part is always perplexing. Not that I'm speaking of being in need. What? Not that I'm speaking of being in need. Meaning to clarify, thank you for coming, thank you for sending Epaphroditus with all these wonderful things, but I'm not saying this because I'm really in any need. It's like, that's kind of a strange thing to say. It's like, from my perspective, you have nothing but need. You're in total need. And he's like, no, not that I'm really in need of anything. Thank you, but I'm not really in need. Like, what's going on here? And he goes on. He's going to show us for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Meaning this, Paul's Paul's shifting the focus. He's he's really saying something remarkable. He says, I'm good with little or nothing. I'm not in prison, depressed and despondent and doubting God and doubting if God is, is with me or he's good to me, no. Remember, I was having a great celebration in the Lord. He said, I was content. I've learned to be content. Verse 12, I know how to be brought low, down and out, in prison, health failing me, alone. I know what it's like to be there. I know what it's like to live in that place and to be in that place. And I know how to abound. I know what it's like to have more than enough, to have money to spare, to have a roof over my head to have a job, to have friends, to have a church family that loves me. I know what it's like to be brought low, and I know what it's like to abound and have much. I, I know both. In any, he goes on, in every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. He says, I've learned the secret of being content. The word secret is uh, we, where we get our word. It uh, could also be translated to mystery. It's like the mystics would have used this word. It's a mystical word. I've learned the mystical secrets. And Paul's using a play on words here when he says this because Eastern, um, Eastern mystery religions are the mystic religions that would have been known at the time by the Philippian church Uh, was like kind of the ancient version of Scientology, like think Tom Cruise, you know, like that kind of thing. So they would have been a little, they would have been familiar with this play on words and the fact that Paul just drops this word, I've learned the secret the mystery. It was hidden and I found it. So he's playing on this theme because in these eastern mystic religions, you would have to go through these initiation type uh, rituals in order to gain understanding or in order to gain uh, secret knowledge about who God is. And only certain people could tell you how to do that. And that's how their whole structure was built on. So Paul's using this type of uh, language, and he's playing on this, these Eastern religions that this church would have been aware of and saying, I found the secret. I've gone through the, the initiation, and I've found the secret to contentment. Contentment is this elusive thing. How many of you could say that? I found the secret of contentment. I'm content whether I have nothing or whether I have everything. Like that is a bold statement. Who could say I'm 100% content right now? Anyone? Not me. I don't need anything else. I don't need more money. I don't need more square footage. I don't need a different this. I don't need a new that. I don't need a new job. I don't need a new whatever it is. I, I'm, I'm just content. But Paul says it. And what blows my mind and what's amazing about this and as he's talking about this and he's drawing this church into this secret that Paul has found that is so elusive is that it doesn't depend on his circumstances because nothing about his circumstances should make him say that, that, he, that he's content. Nothing, he's not rich, he's actually impoverished. He's starving to death, he had nothing. He's not famous. He's infamous. He's wanted by the government as an insurrectionist. He's not married. He's single. He's not healthy. He's thorn in the flesh, he says in other places. So he's got some health issues. Nothing about his circumstances that we would categorize as if only I had these things, then life would be going swimmingly. Paul's not experiencing any of those things that we would put in that category. He's poor. He's not healthy, but he says, I'm having a great celebration in the Lord. Remarkable. I've learned the secret. This is the kind of guy you want to learn contentment from. Now, for the rest of the time, I just want to give us a few thoughts on contentment as I've observed this and been studying and looking, in, looking at this text because there's so much here. We could camp out for weeks in this because this is something that all of us struggle with. Contentment. It is so hard to find. All right, first thing that I notice in this text is contentment is something you learn. You have to learn it. Notice the language in verse 12. I have learned to be content. Verse 11, I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret Contentment is not natural, in other words. It's not just innately in us. It's not just, we don't just all of a sudden arrive to it out of the blue or out of nowhere. Think of Adam and Eve in the garden, all the way back to creation, the human condition. God says, you may eat of any of the fruit of any tree here, minus that one over there. And what do we want? I'd like to see what that one tastes like of all the goodness in the world that he created. The one thing we are, our hearts are so discontented that we're like, I want that one. I wonder what that's like. wonder why he doesn't want me to have that one. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It started all the way back in the garden. It's the human condition. Are we any different? No. This wonderful new building it's so awesome. We've been working on it for, like for, for weeks and months, and there's this, and we've changed to these things, and I guarantee you it's like going to be wonderful and amazing for like two weeks, and then in like two weeks we're going to be like, I wish this was a little different. Oh, man, we, I wish we could have tweaked this one just so this, this wall needs to be like, uh, you know, or there's something. We're just, it's part. It's just kind of in us. We're always seeing what we wish we had that we don't currently have. It's just kind of part of our makeup and part of our brain. And in a world full of the goodness of God, teeming with the generosity of God, we always want the thing we can't have. We always want that next thing. Listen, church, there's always, always something just out of our reach there's always something that we just can't get. It's always the if only I was this, if only I had that, if only I could get this. We all have these things that we chase and there always will be something just outside of our reach. And around here church, I just an observation for us that we deal with um Most of us are not in a place where we don't know how we're going to put food on the table tomorrow. That's not most of our stories. Most of us, the fuel of our discontentment is found in comparison. It's found in comparison. There's always someone like four steps ahead of you. And you're like, oh, I wish I was there. I wish I had that job. I wish I had that car. I wish I could get whatever it is. There's always someone four steps ahead of you. And we have this comparison game, and it breeds discontented hearts and discontented minds in us. But, beloved church, it's never the case when you finally get those things that you finally feel contented because the goalpost always moves the minute you grab it. Or it might last for like a week or maybe a month. Because there's always someone else better looking. There's always someone cooler. There's always someone smarter. There's always someone more educated. There's always someone with more letters behind their name. There's always someone more likable. There's always someone that fits in a little bit better and you wish, if only I were dot, dot, dot. That's why you have to learn to be content. It's not automatic. Uh, the word learn is not a momentary thing. It's in the aorist tense, so it's this ongoing process. It's an ongoing learning. It's an everyday learning. It's not I learned it, and it's done. It is a learning. It is ongoing. Over long periods of time that we learn the secret of contentment. And church, if Paul can learn it, you and I can learn it because we have the very same spirit of God dwelling in us today, right now. A lot of times we're like, oh, but that's Paul. It's like, geez, there's Paul. It's like, of course Paul has learned the secret. We can too. We have the same spirit in us. Um, And every day, every day is a chance To test and probe and examine the secret of contentment. Second observation is contentment is not dependent on your circumstance. Paul says, I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Paul doesn't buy into the if only I had this and if only I got this, then I'll be content. Our language, we don't say contentment that much, we say happy. If only I got this, then I'll be happy or I'll be fulfilled. We kind of use that type of language today a little bit more. Um, He doesn't buy into that. And and we all know inherently, I think, that that's just not true. But we all chase it in some kind of way still. Um, And the second we get it, it moves on us. Right? We work really, really, really hard. And then the goal moves the minute we achieve it. When you're in high school, all you can think about is, can't wait to get to college. I just, I've got to, I've got to, I've got to, got to move on, I got to move out, I'm ready. And then when you're in college, you're like, I got. I can't wait to get that first job. I'm tired of like eating in the cafeteria or whatever that is. And I'm, I'm ready to launch into my first job. Whenever you get that first job, you're like, I'm ready for a real job. It's like, this is not the one I want. This is not the right one. And so we're obsessive and thinking about the next job. And then once you get the next job, you're like, I wish I could get a promotion. And then you're thinking about marriage and you're thinking about the house and then you're thinking about the kids. And then one day you're like, when are they ever going to leave the house? And then you're like, I don't want to work anymore at all, right? There's always just something. We're just like the, it's like the, the carrot on a stick, right? And we're all just sort of, like we're just, guy uh, got room to do that now. It's kind of fun. We're all just chasing those things. And those things are natural. and Those are good. And those are ordered things and part of the human experience. I'm not saying that we shouldn't desire those things. But what Paul is wanting us to understand is that once you grab those things, and once you move on to the next stage of your life, don't think it's going to complete you. That's not the purpose of them. They're not meant to be ultimate things, and we often make them ultimate things, don't we? If you're not content in your job now, you're not going to be content in the next one. My college pastor used to always tell me and tell us this, uh, in terms of even giving and generosity, he would say, "If you don't give out of your poverty, you will never give out of your wealth." Just that idea. It's like if only if I could, once I get that, then I'll be more. And it just doesn't work that way. Um, contentment is not a destination. It is a way to live now and a way to move through your life. It's not dependent on the situation and the circumstances. Yes, there are times that are better than others, obviously. Paul knows that. He's in prison. But he's saying no matter what's going on, because of who we are in Christ, because of who Christ is for us, because of what he's done for us, that he saved us and rescued us and given us a new heart and a new mind, we can be content no matter what's happening. We can have a great celebration in the Lord because we're children of God. Last observation. Um, Contentment is a struggle in times of need. And this is the tricky one, the not so obvious one, and in times of plenty. I know, verse 12, this line stuck out I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. It could also be translated, I've learned to be content with plenty. What? Our one version says, I've learned to cope with having way too much. I, I've never thought about that. Like, that's not something I struggle with. Like Lord, give me more. I want, like, I'll, I'll have it all for your kingdom and your glory. Like, Paul says, no, no, no. I've learned to cope with having too much. what's too much? What's Paul saying? Paul's getting at this fundamental fact, this fundamental reality, and he knows the way that money, and he knows the way that riches and wealth works. The more you have, the more you want, and it's insatiable. If you chase that, you will never stop chasing it. Rockefeller the guy that started Standard Oil, he's believed to be, and if his wealth was amassed today, the wealthiest American to ever live in the history of, of our country, uh, was asked, how much is enough? And he says, just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. That's why he lived his life. It ruled him. Um, the more you have, the more you want. Am I right? Yeah. I remember when Ash and I, we first were called into ministry. I was, I, my, fir, my very first job, uh, I was, I don't know, Ashley was teaching, I was a junior high youth pastor. I was making about like $20,000 a year full time after an undergraduate degree. My dad is still mad about that today. We had a lot of, a lot of conversations about that, right? And so it's like, you're doing what? Um, and, but I remember those days. We just didn't have much and we didn't really need much. We were just, we had enough to, to pay the rent and to put food on the table. Um, and I, I wasn't, I, I wasn't content, but I look back on those times, and I'm sure we all have some of those times, but I, I was more content then than I think I am now. And we didn't have hardly anything. Like, We paid the rent, and we were able to buy groceries, and on Fridays we could go to Blockbuster and we could get a new release, and if it wasn't there, you go to the rewind desk and you see if it's in the bin, and it's usually there. You just learn the tricks, right? And so that was, and then we'd walk over to Kroger and get some Haagen-Dazs, and dazs uh, and uh, I've never worked mine off, Ashley always looks great, and so that's just been, that was, that was fine. That was like life, and it was great, and then we preached the gospel and uh, ministered to junior high students, and it was wonderful, and I was content, because when you aren't really thinking about all that stuff, a new car wasn't an option, a house wasn't an option, uh, all the things, it wasn't, I was like, oh, that's not even in my mind. It's going to focus on what's in front of me. It's when all of a sudden more comes in and we have more than we need that it starts to occupy our thoughts. It starts to make nests in our heart and we start thinking about it more. We've got to figure out how to manage it. And this is part of growing up. It's, I'm not saying that we should not have those things, but it shouldn't take make nests in our mind and our heart and let it just be all that we think about and our minds get stuck in it. The human desire for money, if that's all we're chasing, is a never-ending chase if not put in its right place. That's why even in the Ten Commandments, thou shall not covet is mentioned twice. It's a big deal. In Hebrew literature, uh, you wouldn't put an exclamation, you repeat it to gain emphasis. So it's a big one. Don't covet. It's going if you let that root in your heart, you will never 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 be satisfied. Money in the right place needs to be there, otherwise we'll never find contentment in the Lord. Proverbs 30 puts money in the right perspective. It's a Hebrew prayer. He says it's not going to be on the screen. I'm going to read it. Proverbs 30 if you want to write it down, 7 and 9. It says, two things I ask of you. And so he's saying, two things I'm praying to you, Lord. Speaking to the Lord. Deny them not to me before I die. Here's prayer one. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Second prayer. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Who prays that? Give me neither poverty nor riches, God. Here's my prayer to you, Lord. Remove falsehood from me, remove lying from me, and do not give me poverty, and do not give me riches. What? He says, rather, feed me with the food that is needful to me, or feed me the food of my daily bread. Give me what I need for today, lest I be full and deny you, and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. This Hebrew prayer says, Lord, I do not want too much, and I do not want too little. Give me neither poverty nor riches. That is not a celebrated prayer in our culture. That will not be found in LifeWay if LifeWay still existed as a store, right? It should be, though. Ecclesiastes 5.12 similarly says, Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much. So the hard worker who's out in the field. He's just going. His sleep is sweet because he's been working hard, whether he eats a lot or he doesn't have a lot. But the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. Um, when you have your mind filled with money and worrying about your money and What's that money doing? We want to check on it. We want to always look at it. We want to make sure it's still there. It just begins to occupy. It keeps you up at night. It runs in your head. It runs in your mind. I had a friend who unexpectedly became a millionaire. You're like, oh, so, so feel feels so bad for him, right? But he says this years later as I've been talking to him. He says it happened unexpectedly. His brother passed away and inherited uh, just over a million dollars. And he said, I was never obsessed with money before. And when that happened... All I could do was to check on it all the time. All I could think about was staying a millionaire. I didn't want to lose it. All I could think about for years was not losing it, not losing it and gaining more of it. He said it began to own him. Began to own him and obsess over it. And Paul says, I found the secret. What secret? Verse 13. I can do all things Through him who strengthens me or through Christ who gives me strength. Turns out the secret has a name. The secret has a name through him. Who is that? It's Jesus. King Jesus. The living God, Paul says, he is the secret to contentment. I can do all things through King Jesus who gives me strength. The secret isn't that I've figured out some new stoic mystic thing and some weird initiation ritual. The secret that you need to find contentment on this planet, in this life, is King Jesus being Lord of your life. The secret has a name, and this is one of the most quoted verses in all of the Bible. It is a coffee cup verse. It was on the Thomas Kincaid paintings in the mall in the early nineties, right? It's just it's one of those that we all kind of know, but it's so misquoted because it's not uh, the home team is going to win, or I'm going to win the football game because Christ will give me strength. It's not I can start a business and make a million dollars because Christ can give me strength. In the context, what is Paul talking about? What is the secret? What is what is he talking about. I can be content. I can be content right here in prison with my hands and cuffs behind my back, so to speak. I can be content and at peace through Christ because he gives me strength. No matter if I've failed and I've fallen on my face or I have plenty, I can be content because Christ is near me. He's with me. Now, the backdrop of all of this is remarkable, and the readers would have picked up on it immediately. It's a little bit harder for us to catch and understand. But the backdrop of all of this that Paul is talking about is is the backdrop of ancient Near Eastern philosophy that would have been prevalent in the church in Philippi, namely Stoicism. Anyone heard of Socrates, the Stoic mind, the Stoicism? Yeah, so this is all against the backdrop of Stoicism. So the school of thought in that uh, philosophical movement was the prized virtue above all other virtues was self-sufficiency. The Stoic believed, do not have any ties to any outside sources or any outside world. You can be self-sufficient in and of yourself, and you don't need anything else. You can uh, empty your life of all the needs and be freed from the material world by having uh, self-sufficiency. Some of the biggest uh, ancient Stoics was Socrates. He's quoted by saying this, He is richest who is content with the least for contentment is the wealth of nature. They would have been familiar with this. Um, And that word contentment that Paul uses here could also be translated sufficiency that they would have used all the time in that Stoic philosophy. Another uh, really famous Stoic would have been Seneca. And Seneca, it's believed, wrote... uh, much of his philosophical work about 10 years prior to Paul writing Philippians. So they would have probably read him. They probably would have read, they were writing uh, around the same time. And Seneca says this, written 10 years before Paul wrote Philippians. Seneca, the Stoic philosopher says, the happy man is satisfied with his present situation, no matter what it is, and eyes his fortune with contentment. Contentment was the ultimate virtue. Even the Philippian church would have, have heard these things in the Stoic philosophy, and here's the difference. The Stoics found contentment and self-sufficiency, and it was a reaction to the opulence of the Roman Empire. It was a reaction to the indulgence of the Roman Empire and all that they saw in the waste and all the things that the Roman Empire stood for, and so it was antagonistic against all these things, so the Stoic mind rose up in that way, and Paul picks up that language and turns it on its head. And they would have been like, whoa, he just used the word self-sufficiency. Is he stoic? What's going on here? No, he flips it, and he turns the whole thing on its head, and he says, it's not found in your own self-sufficiency, the contentment that all of you are chasing, that all of you are seeking, that all of you need, and all of you want. It's found in Christ's sufficiency and strength for you. I've learned the secret, and the secret has a name, and his name is Christ, Jesus, our Lord. Dependence on Christ, not independence in self. And he turns the whole thing on its head, and he points to Jesus. Put your desire in Christ. Put your aim in the advancement of the gospel. Take all your drive. Take all your ambition that you have to chase these things and funnel it and fuel it to know, love, and treasure the Lord Jesus Christ because only in him will you find contentment. He is where it is found. Through him who gives me strength can also be translated in him who gives me strength. Contentment is found in a living and real relationship with King Jesus. He is where it's found. Why? Because he's enough. No matter what you're going through, church, no matter if you're facing terrible loss or extreme abundance, Jesus is enough for you in all of it. Do you believe that? Do we believe that? That's what Paul's calling us to believe, not independence, not self-sufficiency, but God-dependence through Jesus Christ. He is enough for you no matter what you're going through. And so no matter where you find yourself, you could say, How are you? I'm having a great celebration in the Lord because Jesus is so good and he is sustaining me and his strength is now my strength. Even when my fails, his is good for me. It is his goodness that I treasure. So no matter what you're going through, church, let's be a people marked with contentment in Christ because he is enough. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you, God, for how you inform our hearts and our minds. And so, Lord, I pray that today you would remind us that our contentment is not to be found in circumstance, is not to be found in, um, Lord, whether we find ourselves in a low place or a high place, but we can find our contentment and joy knowing that you are near to us. So, Lord, I I pray that you would help us learn this secret. Lord, I pray for anyone in this room that does not know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and is chasing what the world is offering. Lord, I pray that today they would turn to you and they would hear the still, small voice, that spirit, you would descend and you would meet that person and that they would come to a saving faith in this King Jesus who has come to rescue and save and redeem and gather to himself a people redeemed under his banner, and that we collectively would experience contentment and joy and peace because we are dependent on you. Lord, we need your help. We thank you for all that you have done we thank you for this place. This place doesn't bring us joy. It is you in this place that brings us joy and contentment. So, Lord, pour out your Spirit in extra measure on us. We need more of you in this place and in our hearts and us collectively together. Would you do that in our midst as we celebrate your goodness in our lives? In Christ's name, amen. Church, will stand.